From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugas, and this is The Explainer. One of the things that I was sort of surprised by was my realization of the limits of due process. Due process can only go so far. And so when schools are thinking about how to deal with this very real problem, they need to have fair procedures. They need to think carefully about what those fair procedures are, but they need to realize the limitations of those procedures and to think about what else they can do. Welcome to season eight of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. As the federal civil rights law Title IX turns 50, campus sexual misconduct expert Tamara Rice Lave examines the failures and successes of the law's enactment. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Tamara. Thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure, Catherine. Thanks for having me. All right. So many people think of Title IX as primarily focusing on gender equality in high school and college sports. But can you talk about the breadth and depth of the law? So uh, Title IX promises equality in education. And although it began with uh, equality in, in education, like the classroom, it was quickly thought to extend to athletics but it took 10 years before courts and the Department of Education thought of Title IX extending to uh, prohibit sexual harassment. So, I mean, there's been a fight between the administrations on whether it protects trans peoples. And so, you know, I'm not sure where things are going to go in the future, but it is a general guarantee. And then it's up to administrations and courts to interpret it. All right. Some of the most widely reported Title IX violations focus on sexual harassment. What is the Dear Colleague letter? So the 2011 Dear Colleague letter is a letter that was written by the Department of Education under President Obama. It was uh, written by Catherine Lehman, who was then the head of the Office of Civil Rights, the Department of Education. It was a letter that told schools that they weren't doing enough to battle sexual assault on campuses. It Uh, told schools that they needed to take certain measures. The letter was extremely controversial for a number of reasons. First of all, under the Administrative Procedure Act, when an administrative agency like the Department of Education releases new law, new rules telling schools they have to do something or they can get in trouble, they're supposed to comply with certain rules, the Administrative Procedure Procedure Act. And that means that they have to go through either formal or informal rulemaking. The Obama administration did not do that with that letter, which is why when uh, the new Trump administration came in, it was so easy for Betsy DeVos to simply pull the letter because it did not comply with existing law. So that was one reason it was controversial. Another reason it was controversial was because although sexual assault is a real problem, they, in my opinion, made the mistake of misstating data to try to seem like it was worse than it was. So there was a study that was done, uh, the campus sexual assault study, which or a campus sexual assault study from 2007, which said, which found that for these two schools, one in five students had been um, sexually assaulted, and The thing is that it was not a nationally representative study. They explicitly said that. The authors actually wrote something in Time magazine in which they said, hey, everybody, this is not a nationally representative study. Saying it is is misleading at best. And the the Department of Education under Obama did not 
acknowledge that. They misrepresented the study. They also failed to acknowledge a study that was nationally representative that was done by the Bureau of Justice Statistics, or I beg your pardon, yeah, by BJS, that found much lower levels of uh, sexual assault. I'm sorry, it might not have been BJS. It might have been, you don't care, a, depart- a, 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 a department, a study that was done by the government, by our government, and they did not talk about that. So that was the second reason was controversial. And the third reason was they told schools they had to make changes. And one of the changes they said was that when you're trying to decide if somebody committed, violated Title IX, committed sexual assault, that committed sexual assault, you had to make the finding at preponderance of the evidence. And there were schools that were using a higher standard, clear and convincing evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And the Department of Education said no more than uh, preponderance of the evidence. So the letter went out and schools scurried to try to comply. And many people, including me, think that it began a culture where schools felt pressured to lower procedural protections for accused students, which was very problematic. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd like to circle back just for a second about, so there's those that contend that the implementation of Title IX had a deleterious effect on men's sports, fact or fiction? Well, I agree with that although it's because of the decisions that schools made. I mean, what Title IX says is there has to be equal funding. And the problem is that schools like the school where I am, the University of Miami, spends a lot of money on football. Many schools do. And what that means is they don't have as much money to put in for other sports like running or crew or um, I, don't, I don't know what else. And so uh, the problem with that is that, yes, in the sense that some school, some sports suffered, but that's only because of the decision that the universities made to not allocate more funds across multiple sports as opposed to really funneling it into one sport, football. Got it. Got it. I know you have a book coming out in a few months, Cam- Campus Sexual Assault Defending Due Process, and I'm not trying to get the milk for free. But could you tell us some of the things that surprised you when you were researching your book? Yeah, I would say two things really. The first is that I, in in the process of researching the book, I read every study and major study uh, that was trying to measure sexual assault on campuses from the first one was in the mid-1950s through the present time. And part of what's interesting is that of the more modern studies, much of what, much of what they're measuring, it's not clear that what it is, is actually should be attributed to schools, to happening on schools. So what I mean is that, I mean, when you talk about, when you think about Title IX, what people are protesting about and talking about is they're thinking about rape, sexual assault, sexual misconduct happening on campuses, being done by by students or teachers or administrators or people that are associated with the school. But in fact, most of the studies don't actually ask information about who the perpetrator is. And one of the rare studies that did this, in fact, the only study that did it for, um, that that, disc- that distinguished between the more serious kinds of conduct like um, rape, you know, physical penetration or sexual, um, sexual battery, found that uh, this was the 2016 Campus Climate Survey Validation Study. And they found that 33% of rape and 28% of sexual batteries happened on campus. 
and that 55% of rape offenders and 56% of sexual batterers were affiliated with the school, which means that about half of, at least in this study, it's not a nationally representative study, although it was, it was, a, it was a, a large study, but not nationally representative, about half of those perpetrators were not not associated with the school. Now, let me make it clear. I am, you know, sexual assault is a real problem and schools need to do something about it. It's just that one of the problems with mischaracterizing what's happening is that it allows people to say, this isn't real. You're making a crisis sound, you're making something sound like a crisis when it's not. And so I think it's much better, both from the perspective of having, being truthful but also, even if you don't care about the truth, if all you're interested in is strategy, how can I accomplish my goals? If you mischaracterize the data, like the 2011 Dear Colleague letter did, what that does is it allows people to dismiss it. And so I think it matters that, you know, really only one studies asked this question. So more studies should ask it. But it also means that we need to think about you know, the way, how we're characterizing it. And also if we want to stop it, what's the best way to stop it? I mean, if half of the perpetrators aren't associated with the school, I mean, doesn't mean we shouldn't do something, but we're going to do something different if a hundred percent of the people are students or professors or administrators or coaches or whatever else. Right. Got it. Oh, I'm sorry. And I had one other thing that you oh, asked sure. me. My the last, the other thing I'd say is, so I'm obviously from my title, it's pretty clear that I'm a fan of due process. You know, I'm a law professor, as you know. I was a public defender for 10 years. I was the um, the reporter for an ABA task force. We we wrote, we reached consensus on uh, guideline or on on recommended guidelines or recommended procedures that schools should implement. They were very due process oriented. I feel strongly that. It, you know, we need transparency, we need fair process, we need the opportunity for both sides to put on evidence, to have their cases heard, et cetera. And I would say that a lot of, although may, people may not realize this, so do a lot of pro-victim people too. I mean, in our um, ABA task force, we had some prominent victims advocates and they were strongly due process. Um, but one thing that was sort of surprising was that when I talked with some of the people I spoke with, even when they got, you know, even when they prevailed at the hearing, that fair procedures and the outcome you want, that that only goes so far. I mean, what people have gone through on both sides is a traumatic event. I don't, I don't just mean in terms of if there was, you know, obviously if there's a sexual assault, but also if you're accused, if you're, the whole thing is just difficult. And, you know, one of the things that I was sort of surprised by was my realization of the limits of due process. Due process can only go so far. And so when schools are thinking about how to deal with this very real problem, they need to have fair procedures. They need to think carefully about what those fair procedures are, but they need to realize the limitations of those procedures and to think about what else they can do. So one of the things I advocate is restorative justice processes. Donna Coker, who's a professor here, one of my colleagues, you know her well, She's done a lot of writing on a restorative justice or RJ. And I think one of the reasons why it's so promising is that it, it, it sees that, I mean, 
course it wants things to be fair, but it, it but it, it it believes that the process is reintegrating the offender. It's a process that's victim driven in the sense that the victim gets to, you know, communicate the way that they feel, what they want. And, you know, it's only a process that works if both people agree, but it's a it's a way of saying that that there's something beyond winning and losing that we care about. And so I think it's a really, as long as it's implemented correctly, that it's a really, really great um, alternative, whether or not it's the process itself that you use to adjudicate or whether it's the process you use once someone is found responsible to decide what the consequences are going to be. But I do think that it's not enough to have a fair hearing. A fair hearing is foundational. It's of the utmost importance, but it's not enough. I see, I see. Um, so lastly, does Title IX work? Is is there more that needs to be done to, quote, level the playing field, to use a really bad cliche? What I'm really afraid of right now is what the Biden administration is going to do. So the Trump administration, I was not a fan. Betsy DeVos, not a fan. But they did something right here. They followed the Administrative Procedure Act, they went through informal rulemaking, the notice and comment process. They received thousands of comments. They wrote a a 2,000 plus page publication in which they addressed multiple comments. They changed what the final regulations were based on what they had heard. And, you know, Biden, while he was running, said, basically, I'm going to trash this if I am, if I win. And then as soon as he won, it was one of the first things that the Department of Education set about trying to do. They cannot, they can't do what DeVos and Trump did with the Dear Colleague letter because it went through formal, because it went through the processes laid out in the Administrative Procedure Act. It's good law. It's good, it's good rulemaking. So they can't just pull it out, but they're trying to go through a process of getting rid of it. And I think that it's, would be really problematic. Um, you know, it's really problematic in part because I think that much of it is really good. I mean, much of the new rules is followed the recommendations of this bipartisan ABA task force. Much of it's good. Although I do think there are changes that should be made. In my book, I discuss many of them. I mean, I think that it is by no means perfect. There are things that should happen. But the other thing that worries me is, you know, this is not an easy situation. The coming at what's a fair process is going to be one where both sides yield, where both sides are willing to give a little bit. And so if the Biden and 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 the Trump administration, from the way that they handled the comments, from the way that they they created their rules, although imperfect, they I, I believe that to a large degree they really did, there was some yielding. What worries me is that if advocates, you know, now think, well, I don't have to actually sort of participating in the rulemaking process. I can just wait for my man, my person to become president and then get what I want. And then what we're going to have is we're just going to have a new set of rules. You know, another a Republican president will come along. They will go through rulemaking. They'll give their set and we'll just we'll never have something that we realize you know, something fair and something that's so controversial, something we can sit with is not going to be what's our ideal. It's going to be what we think is fair. And so it worries me both substantively 
and as a procedural matter, what's happening right now. So I sincerely hope, although I, I think that some changes should be made, and I've recommended them at length in my book, I think it would be a grave mistake for the Biden administration to simply basically trash what's there and replace it with what they want, because I think that we'd be setting a terrible precedent, one that we're seeing you know, in Congress. I mean, people have to be able to work together. We'll be going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And I just want to point out that, I mean, you know, this matters. This matters to the men and the women who've been assaulted. It matters to the men and the women who are accused. It matters to the institutions. And so, you know, we need to do our best to get this right. But again, to understand that getting it right does not mean that either side thinks this is the perfect solution. It's one both sides think is fair. Like Rodney King said, why can't we all just get along? Well, thank you so much uh, for joining us and uh, we'll be diving in to your book soon. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Catherine. Have a wonderful afternoon. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Explainer. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's upcoming White and Case International Arbitration Lecture, International Arbitration and EU Law, still on a collision course with Columbia Law Professor George A. Berman. The March 2nd event is open to the public, virtually or in person. For more information and to register, search the miami.law.edu website.